Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. When our guest, Pastor Cheon, was faced with imprisonment for keeping his church open during COVID lockdowns, he realized God's love speaks truth to set captives free. As you listen today, be inspired by his story and equipped to walk in God's love through the challenges before you. After the episode, visit a awordinseasonpodcast.org and find resources Doug and the team have provided for you, including the episode notes from this message. Learn how you can let others know that somebody cares with a donation that will support disaster response and ministry efforts by clicking on the Somebody Cares tab at awordinseasonpodcast.org. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. Welcome to another Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and our special series called Transforming Leadership. Today, our special guest and longtime friend is Apostle Che On, pastors at Harvest Rock Church in Pasadena, California, also has HIM Harvest International Ministries. Che, great to have you on with us today. Thank you, Doug. It's an honor to be with you, and thanks for being my friend for all these years. I was processing last night. I mean, you had already been pastoring, obviously, and, and then when you went to California, you started the church that you're now pastoring in 1994, I believe. We met and actually gotten better acquainted shortly thereafter when Jack Hayford had me come out to speak at Love LA. So I had the pleasure of meeting with you and with Lou. So, Che, you had gotten a word of knowledge watching Pat Robertson, who, by the way, congratulations to Pat 60 years at the CBN and just uh, announced his retirement. But what an incredible ministry. And so you were impacted, as I have been, by the 700 Club. Tell us a little bit about that journey and how you ended up in California. In 1982, I received a prophetic dream. And in the dream, a black man appeared to me and said, come to Los Angeles, for there's going to be a great revival, great harvest. And I woke up my wife next to me and I said, honey, I had the most prophetic, profound dream. I shared the dream with her. The spirit of God was resting on us. And she said, we need to get out of bed and get down on our knees and just really ask God for major confirmation. We knew it was of the Lord, but we wanted to make sure our pastors and uh, I was not the senior pastor at that time. I was an associate pastor, really confirmed this. Because we had never been to Los Angeles, 3,000 miles away, with no family, no friends. It just seemed like so out of the blue. So um, anyway, we prayed, and I shared it with my pastor, our pastoral team, and they somewhat freaked out. They said, you know, 3,000 miles away, you know, we were part of a small church planning movement, but the furthest west that we had planted a church was in Cleveland, Ohio. And so my pastor said, you know what, why don't you take the weekend and really seek God and pray fast and ask the Lord for a confirmation? So my wife and I went to Ocean City, Maryland, and my uncle has a condo there. And this is now March 1983, this off-season. And we don't even know if um, if the television, for example, was working. But when we got to the condo, we put down our bags, we got down on our knees, and we just said, Lord, we just dedicate this weekend to you. And we really ask you to just show us and speak to us. And so I felt this impression from the Holy Spirit to turn on the TV that the 700 Club was on. And I joked with my wife, I said, hey, maybe Pat's on and he can give us a word of knowledge and that would be our confirmation. And so we turned on the television, I channel surfed, and sure enough, the 700 Club was on. This is back when Ben Kinchlow was co-host. And they were praying over a stack of uh, letters, giving out words of knowledge for healing at that time when we turned it on. And then Pat pauses and says, there's a pastor who's asking for a confirmation about planning a church. And the Lord says, this is of me. If you go out in unity and in harmony, I'll give you great success. 
And then he went on to give other words of knowledge for healing. And my wife and I looked at each other, could not believe this incredible specific word, which is out of character for what they do during that time of prayer. So because the 700 Club was on the family channel, they owned the family channel at that time. They later sold it to ABC. We caught the next airing of that show. And I had a micro cassette tape recorder with me. And I recorded the uh, prophetic word, brought it back to our pastors. And when they heard it, it was like the Spirit of God fell upon all of them. They said, this is incredible. This is a major confirmation. They blessed Sue and me. They asked me to pick a team, and I picked Lou Engel. And I got to tell you about Lou because um, he was not a pastor. In fact, uh, you know, we had a large church, a couple thousand people, and didn't know everyone. So when I first met Lou, I asked him what he did, just like we normally do when we greet each other. And he said, well, I cut grass for a living. I said, I beg your pardon. Yeah, I work at Leisure World, which is a retirement center, and uh, I mow lawn uh, for them. And so I said, oh, you just ride around in a riding lawnmower? Because I know Leisure Center is huge with like 30 acres. And he said, no, uh, they want my the lines to be perfect, so I have to use a push lawnmower wow. to make sure the lines are impeccable. And I said, dude, that must be a boring job. I mean, you do this eight hours a day, five days a week. And he said, oh, no, it's the best job. I just pray in tongues eight hours a day, five days a week. When he said that, and he said it with such sincerity, the Spirit of God touched me, and I knew in my heart I had to ask him to be on my team because I knew I needed an intercessor to come out to California. And I would have to say, Doug, in 42 years of vocational full-time ministry, that was probably the best hire I ever made as a pastor. And so Lou and I went out and... um, you know, it was hard the first 10 years in the 80s. I used that time to go to Fuller Seminary, got my MDiv, my D-Men. I met Peter Wagner, and he became my mentor. But then in 1994, the Spirit of God fell in Toronto, fell in Los Angeles, and uh, we started our church. I was itinerating at that time. I was not a pastor. And the Lord spoke to me to start Harvest Rock Church, and we've been having a wonderful time ever since. Uh, one time you had me come out to speak in the early days. The one who actually drove me around and met with me was Lou. We've talked about that since then. It's like, it's amazing how there's a word I keep using the last couple of weeks called synchronicity. And there's all these things that seem unrelated, but God had puts all these pieces together. And we sometimes don't see the fullness of that until we look back in retrospect of how God was already putting everything together in ways that we couldn't see at the moment. When you started the church, um, and you and Lou, it was shortly thereafter that Jack Hayford had me come speak at Love LA. And uh, he had been in Houston. We were helping to facilitate a gathering for pastors. And, and he had asked if I would come to speak at that. And this, we connected really closely at that time. And so I came to visit with you at the church after that. In fact, at that Love LA, Jack actually felt it was time for him to, to transition and actually encouraged you to take on the calling of bringing churches together in the region. Yeah, Love LA was a real brilliant uh, God-given strategy that God gave to Jack Hayford, Lord Ogilvie, who was at that time uh, the senior pastor at Hollywood Presbyterian, and he later on became the Senate chaplain, this prominent evangelical Presbyterian, dear friend, a golly man. And then uh, the other board members were Bishop Charles Blake, who became the presiding bishop of Church of God in Christ, and Bishop Ken Ulmer, uh, the largest charismatic church in Los Angeles at that time. And he bought the great 
Western Forum, the first one to buy a basketball arena. Now, Joel Stein in Houston uh, bought one later on, but this was a real pioneering African-American thriving church. And I joke, I was the token Asian, you know, on that board. And so we had two African-Americans, two white and an Asian. And during that time, um, it was just a, a very significant time of bringing unity to the church. 800 pastors met three times a year to pray under Love L.A., the thing that I learned from that, which was probably the greatest lesson, was is that the reason why it was so successful is because each of the leaders on the board were apostles. They weren't just pastors, and they had a tremendous sphere of influence, and they were able to bring their other leaders together. And I know for years that people have been hosting pastors' prayer summits and prayer retreats, etc., and they would say, if we as pastors would just come together and pray together, we would see revival. Well, you know, we've seen a lot of pastors' prayer meetings, uh, and we didn't see a revival. And so what I saw, though, with Love LA is and it wasn't just pastors coming together, it was apostles. I switched the uh, paradigm for me personally. If we can recognize who are the apostles in the church and bring them together, whether they call themselves apostles or not is not the issue, it's a function. And to, to bring these leaders together, I really believe that you could shift a state, a city, even a nation. And so this is, I think, the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, the glory that you've given to me, I've given to them that they may be one. I and them, they and me, that they may be perfect in unity. It takes the grace of God to bring everyone together. But I believe that this is kind of unity that Jesus prayed in order for the world to believe that uh, God sent his son. I liked how you said that it's about function because it took a long time you know, you and I both serve on various executive committees and leadership for ICA, International Coalition of Apostolic Leaders, as well as I'm a co-convener with the United States Council of Apostolic Leaders and other networks. And of course, you have your own incredible network, HIM, around the world. And to us, it's not about putting it on a business card that we're a capital A apostle, like we're trying to compare ourselves to the apostolic fathers of the church. But we do recognize the importance of leadership that comes underneath and serves and helps build the kingdom, helps to create a platform for others to grow. It really is a function. It really isn't a title. And, you know, in every great renewal or, or movement, everybody wants to be a prophet. Everybody wants to be a apostle. Everybody wants to be something. Yet there are those that God uses in function who are able to facilitate the advancement of the kingdom. Peter Wagner actually shared with me for a couple hours one day, because I didn't want to use that term. And he said, Doug, look, let's stop and look. And he gave me a two and a half hour conversation about <laughs> the function. And I then I began to get it because it wasn't about passing out a business card. It was about uh, there are horizontal apostolic leaders and there are vertical uh, apostolic leaders over movements. But then there are those who come together and reason together for the sake of becoming something bigger than themselves. And so I'm glad you said that because it really is about function. There's so much confusion out there and, and people, you know, misusing terms, but yet there is an authenticity of the use of the fivefold ministry gifts in the kingdom that's never ceased and that still exists today. I totally affirm what you're saying. And I've always seen it as a function in my life. Uh, most people call me Pastor Che or even Papa Che or Che. Uh, but not really Apostle Che, except for in certain cultures, you know, like in some different foreign nations, they really do have a theology of really giving the title as if that's going to be 
uh, giving them more authority. And I don't have problems with that in those uh, settings. But I think it's really important what you said in um, Ephesians 4.11, that when he ascended, he gave some to be apostles, not everyone, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. But like whenever there's a restoration of truth, you know, then everyone's talking the same language. They think they're all apostles or prophets. But you got to be called. And uh, that's why, you know, we we're just talking earlier about Romans 1 1. I love this verse because I think it shares the four characteristics of an apostle. The first thing Paul says is that Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. This is all about servant leadership. No matter what function, no matter what calling of Ephesians 4.11, we're all called to be servant leaders. Of course, the seminal verse is in John 20, verse 25, where Jesus says, the Gentiles lorded over them and exercise authority over them, but not so for you. He's talking to his apostles. But if you want to be great, and there is a greatness in God's kingdom as an upside-down kingdom, you got to be a servant. And if you want to be first, you got to be a doulos, a slave. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so I think that is the whole objective. And so I think for me, I've approached every assignment as a servant, just even being on the board of Love L.A., was kind of heady because you're with these major internationally known leaders. I mean, you're talking about Charles Blake, who's now the presiding bishop of the largest African-American Pentecostal denomination. I remember John Dawson, I was taking his place because he was moving to Hawaii, and he simply said, just be a servant, Jay. I mean, that so impacted me. And I said, yeah, because I was really nervous. What am I doing in this group? If you approach it as a servant, you get your eyes off of uh, who you are, and you get it on the, on the Lord Jesus because he gives all the glory. And then you get it on the people that you're called to serve. But then he goes on to say, called to be an apostle. Yeah, you don't choose to be an apostle, but God does call certain people. You know, it's interesting, the word apostle or apostle appears 82 times in the New Testament. Most of it does refer to the apostles of the Lamb, the 12 apostles that Jesus picked. And they are going to have a special place in the heaven to come, the new heaven, new earth in Revelation 21. But there's so many other apostles that are mentioned. And of course, Paul was not part of the original 12. Later on, James, the brother of Jesus, becomes the presiding apostle in Jerusalem, and he wasn't part of the original 12. And John 8 says he didn't even believe that Jesus was the Messiah, which stuns me. It's almost like there was a skill over the, the family, the brothers and sisters of Jesus, but there's so many others, obscure, a woman named Adronicus and Junia were apostles even before Paul in Romans chapter 16. So when you add all that up, it's pretty amazing that we have neglected this major function in the church, whereas the word shepherd or pastor only appears one time in Ephesians 4.11. Now, there are other synonyms like presbyteros, the Greek word for elders, or episkopos, the Greek word for bishop, uh, and so they are used interchangeably. But even if you add those words up, it doesn't even come close to the the number of times apostles are mentioned in um, the New Testament. In fact, in Revelation two four, in the, the writer of John says, um, "I know your deeds, your perseverance, your hard work to the church in Ephesus." Then he goes on to say, "You've tested false apostles." and found them to be false. But this one thing I have against you, you've lost your first love. But the point I want to make is that if there are that many false apostles, it stands to reason there are a lot of other true apostles. And so it's amazing that the church is founded upon apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2.20, Christ being the ultimate foundation, the cornerstone. But we don't 
teach much about apostolic ministry. That's why I, I wrote a book called Modern Day Apostles that came out a few years ago, but it's so needed. But then the rest of the verse says, set apart. I feel that everything rises and falls with leadership, as John Maxwell said. And I really believe that what the church needs is consecrated, set-apart leaders today like never before. I feel the church has been very lukewarm. We have gone into years of decades of secret-sensitive ministry where we won't preach the whole counsel of God. We won't call people to I mean, let's take the abortion issue, which is a hot issue right now. When was the last time a pastor spoke on right to life, maybe even on Sanctity Sunday in January, to preach on those issues? We won't preach on same-sex marriage issues uh, or defining biblically what marriage is all about, because we're afraid we're going to lose people. And I know they say, well, we want to reach the laws and we don't want to turn them off. But I, I believe the laws want to hear the truth. They want to hear what the Word of God has to say, as long as we're speaking the truth in love, right? So I feel it begins with leadership. And that's why in Joel 2, in verse 28, it says, I'll part my spirit in, in the last days, I'll part my spirit upon all flesh. But after what? After you repent, Joel 2 verse 12 says, repent, the word Hebrew word, Shub is translated return or repent with all your heart, with weeping, fasting, and mourning. And then it says, let the priests weep between the porch and the altar. Leaders have to begin. And so if, and this is my personal opinion, I believe revival begins with the church, not the world, not unbelievers coming in. It first begins with the church. It's First Peter 4, 17, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. If my people are called by my name, not the Congress, not the White House, but if my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I feel like we're like the church in Laodicea. We have to repent of lukewarmness. And so I, I'm appealing for pastors to consecrate themselves. I'll never forget uh, someone said to D.L. Moody, the world has yet to see what God would do through, for, by, with a man who's totally consecrated to God. And D.L. Moody said, I'll be that man. I've prayed that prayer many times. I said uh, almost daily, God, I want to be that man. I want to consecrate myself afresh to you, to love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, to give you all the glory and honor as do you. And so set apart, and then for the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom is what transforms people's lives and cities and nation. We got to get back to preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the basics of Jesus died for our sins. According to scripture, he rose again, and uh, he's seated, by the way, at the right hand of the Father. He's not standing nervous over COVID or what's going on with a border crisis or Afghanistan. He said, it is finished, and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he's going to reign forever and ever. We win. But we're here to enforce the victory that Jesus won on the cross 2,000 years ago by preaching the good news, casting out demons, healing the sick, freely we receive, we need to freely give, and we need to be about our Father's business. Absolutely. Wow. We could go on for hours and just talking about all of these because we need to get back to the centrality of the cross. And I liked what you said. I'm always sharing with our family and, and those that I'm in relationship with, Speak the truth in love, season with grace, but speak the truth nonetheless, because it's a truth that sets people free. Amen. And if we're not speaking truth, then we no longer have the love of truth. In fact, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, that because we no longer have the love of the truth, we'll begin to believe a lie. We'll see strange fire in the sense of 
we believe in signs and wonders and God's spirit works today. But if we don't have a love for the truth, we can be deceived by a false signs and wonders. And then he goes on to say, it's because you no longer have a love for the truth, you'll be turned over to strong delusion. So the issue is a love of the truth. And if we no longer have the love for the truth, and, you know, as you know, I used to be in the fitness business 40 years ago, and I, you know, no pain, no gain. Now I say, Lord, make it hurt so good because I want to change. If I don't walk in the disciplines of God, in the parameters in which God gives me and the restraints that he's placed on the flesh, then we can begin to believe a lie and do whatever we want. And we'll go back into the, the 60s and 70s, which we are seeing happening again today, this kind of a, you know, free life, sex, you know, do whatever you want, whatever feels good, do it, society. And, and it's, it's amazing how there's nothing new under the sun that we see a regurgitation of the works of the flesh coming back again a generation later. And if we're not standing for the truth, we have nothing to set a plumb line. Uh, you know, we, we swing by every swing of the pendulum, even in the church, but we as Christians, the church, need to be grounded and be a plumb line or a plumb bob rather than being swinging to every swing of societal mores of the day. You know, we talk about fake news and we're so turned off by media and uh, even unbelievers just don't believe in the news anymore. But I wonder if there's a connection with the church. If we're to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, if the church is not preaching truth and uh, we're really perpetuating this fake news narrative, you wonder how that's impacted the media, because I believe as a church goes, so goes society. And so um, I, I feel there's a direct correlation because we're not, again, putting the plumb line down and saying, this is what marriage is all about. It's between a man and woman. We don't speak out. And so they will then, the humanists uh, will come up with a definition of marriage. And so I feel it's really critical as pastors that we continue to be the conscious. You know, Dr. King said, look, we're not over the state and the state's not over us, but we're to be the prophetic voice, the conscience to the state. And we've lost that edge. And so we need to return to that. And we need to be the prophetic people that God's called us to be. I'm going to step aside a second before we move on. You and I had served also many years ago. I can't remember how many decades ago. And we, for a season, had what was called the North American Asian Task Force. And you and I were serving on that as well. I know that you and I, people have, especially since you were as the apostolic covering of the call when Lou did the first call in Washington, D.C., and of course, the subsequent calls, there were people joking with me that they thought that I was you. We've had people tell you they thought you were me. We had a pastor's gathering in Houston, and I invited you to come speak. And you got up and said, look, let me just tell you. And you explained the story about how to tell the difference between us Asians. And at the end of it, you said, you can always tell that the Koreans are the best looking. So <laughs> I tell that same story that you shared. And I go, Che will say it this way, but let me just say this. The best looking have to be the Japanese. So how, how did you tell that story? Well, I just said, you know, I know you think we all look alike, but we know how to discern as, as a Korean. I can tell the difference between Chinese, Japanese, and a Korean. I, I said, if you see a rich looking Asian, they're Chinese. And of course, the Chinese ambition is to have a greater economy than the United States. Uh, I said, if you see a smart looking Asian, they're Japanese. But if you see a handsome looking Asian, he's Korean. So that's how you tell the difference. And of course, each Asian will turn around and use that on, on themselves as well. But anyway, that, 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 that has been uh, a, something that when it comes to you and me, <laughs> that joke keeps on resurrecting. Well, like any culture, one thing we recognize is that every 
category of people is not monolithic. There are different backgrounds. I mean, some of us are born, I was categorized as a salmon Asian. I was born in another country, and, and but raised mostly here. And uh, But living in a culture where my mother was Japanese in the home and my dad was American. So I was living in this kind of a awkward cultural dichotomy. And so we had to address all those. And just like Asians that have are not monolithic, neither are those of African descent or those of European descent or those of Hispanic descent. There is a distinction that we have to recognize the uniqueness of individuals, but also the tension of the, the generations of the culture. And I think if we're not willing to look at that uh, and we categorize everybody in a, in a broad sweep, I think we'll continue to have the divisiveness that we have today rather than recognizing that we're from every nation, one blood in Christ. Amen. I, I think this is so important because when I see anyone, I don't focus on the race at all, you know, and I think, uh, unfortunately, our society has gone into the critical race theory where everything is about race uh, instead of, uh, as with Dr. King said, you know, he said, I'm interested in the content of character, not the color of their skin. And so I think we got to get back to that. But, um, unfortunately, you know, and, and again, you know, I'm saying this as a person of color. America is the best nation in the world. I've been to 92 nations. Uh, this is not a hyperbole. We're in 70 nations as a ministry. So I've traveled around the world. And whenever I come back to the United States, it's the greatest country in the world. But unfortunately, being in uh, California, this progressive left state, uh, we're teaching critical race theory to elementary school kids, basically teaching them to hate basically racism. But what unfortunately, they're associating anyone who's white as a racist. Whether they think they are or not is just immediate stereotype. And, and to me, it's just really wrong to, to teach kids that. Um, at such a young age, and instead of really teaching them to love one another, we're teaching them to to really um, become racist ourselves. It's so ironic, and it's just um, something that I think in ours, uh, we need revival in America, bottom line. We need major revival, begins with the church, and we need to, as a church, demonstrate uh, the kind of love and unity. Is there racism in the church? I'm sure there is. But I tell you, you know, as a person of color, I've been in a white church all my life. I pastor a white congregation, and I've never experienced race, except when I was in elementary school, when kids don't have the manners, and they're calling you Japanese, even though I'm not Japanese, because the war in Japan. Japan took place, or Vietnamese, even though I'm not, because the war in Vietnam was going on in the 60s when I immigrated to this country. But but apart from uh, th those scenes, I, I've never really experienced racism, and I've felt nothing, especially in the body of Christ. Oh, my goodness, you know, just no matter where I go around the world, you know, it's a media connection is a supernatural thing, because the same spirit that's in me, that's in you, that raised Christ from the dead, and we connect. And so I feel that as a church, we need to lead the way, that this is the way walking in. Can we have the kind of love and unity uh, that the world's looking for? I believe so. I believe this is why Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be one. And that's a key to revival. And I totally agree. You know, I've shared for years out of Micah chapter 4, and I know contextually we're talking about uh, in the last days or latter days, all people gather at the mountain of the Lord. Obviously, that's literal in context, but the spiritual dynamic of that is that it says in the last days, all peoples will gather at the mountain of the Lord, and they will put aside their weapons of warfare against each other and turn them into harvesting tools together. And once they do that, then they will become a nation of outcasts, lame and sick will become a strong nation. 
And I really believe that as the church, what a great spiritual symbolic example we can be if in the house of the Lord, we can cross our racial, denominational, generational lines, meet at the cross, put aside those things, the petty things that keep us separated and come to the centrality of the cross. And what has brought us together is Christ. And in that, the world will see that the outcasts, the lame, and the sick, all of us together will become a strong spiritual nation within a nation, and we can see the blessings of the nations again. So it really is putting aside our differences to find our commonality in Christ. If we don't do that, we can preach all day long, but we won't have a commonality that gives us an inertia to move forward and advancing the kingdom together. Yeah, I mean, the gospel of the kingdom, I mean, you think about when in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, 4, when God brought forth his son, Jesus, in the time of the Roman Empire, where you talk about total totalitarian domineering enslaving empire, they would conquer and enslave, no one had equality. But Jesus comes on the scene, and he brings incredible equality between men and women. There's neither male nor female. Greek or Jew, barbarian, Gentile, color, we're all one in Christ. And that has to be restored, that kind of mentality and understanding needs to be restored in the church, that I believe we're, we're the answer to the society's problem. So that's why I love I love uh, working with people like you, Doug, because you know we, we both come from uh, ethnic minority background, and yet uh, we're striving, as it says in Ephesians 4.3, to maintain unity in the bonds of love. And I really do believe that is the key. You know, it's interesting in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, Acts 2, 1, that Greek word homothumadon, one accord, appears 10 times in the first 10 chapters of Acts, and it's the condition for revival. They were in the upper room in one accord, and then suddenly the Holy Spirit came, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that's what God's looking for, for before he sends another wave of revival. He's looking for that kind of love and unity that he just says all throughout his teaching about, you know, how (laughs) we're to love one another. I've been really enraptured by John 15, 9, where Jesus says in the upper room, he says, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. With the same pure agape love, God the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Now abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. And this is my commandment that you love one another. So it's all wrapped around if we love God, love one another, uh, then we're going to see our prayers answered because it's all in the context of prayer. It's John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and shall be given to you. And I really believe that's what's hindering a lot of prayer is is that we're not walking in the kind of love, even receiving the Father's love. We can't even love without receiving His love. As 1 John 4, 19, we love because He first loved us. But when we receive His love, then we can turn around and love others, including ourselves. And so this is really needed in the body of Christ. Jay, you you used the word love. And Dr. Evan Lewis Coley used to say, faith is believing those things you cannot see will come to pass. But he said also fear is believing those things you cannot see will come to pass. So uh, two different words, two different kingdoms, and yet they sound like they, they mean the same thing. The same is true today. We live in a world where everybody talks about love, but there's no real understanding of what love means. Now, we know that love desires to give at the expense of self. Jesus gave and laid on his life for us. I found that to love is to still speak the truth and love season with grace, but speak the truth nonetheless. Because I care. If if my daughter, when she was a little girl, wants to run across the freeway, I'm going to scold her because I love her. 
And, yeah. uh, and the scripture says that God chastises those that he loves. But today's world, the word love has so many different meanings and contexts. People can adamantly totally disagree with me. I can disagree with them, but I can still show respect and a godlike love towards them, even in our uh, opposition's uh, belief. And I know you've lived through some of that even now in California. And in fact, the day that we were at your gathering, you had a Reformation roundtable. My wife and I were there with so many wonderful friends and leaders. It was great to see everyone. And then you asked if I would stay over and minister on that Sunday morning at your church. And then I found out, oh, by the way, um, there's an injunction or there's a, uh, we've been threatened by the city that if we have church, we can be arrested. I'm thinking, well, great, a Texan speaking, <laughs> and, um, you know, but I, I mean, I just thought about that for a moment. But, but you've been through so much and you guys have overcome a major battle lawsuit in California because even though you love your state, you're there because you love the state, you love people, you've ministered 92 nations around the world from there. What gave you, because this is one of those things you have to overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. Yes. How do you maintain your, your testimony at the same time, stand up for your convictions, even when people oppose you? Tell us a little bit about that journey. Well, you hit a, a major point, uh, Doug. I think uh, we need to really redefine love. And you know, when we were growing up during the Jesus People Movement, we would talk about sloppy agape. Yeah. And uh, we're not talking about that kind of love. As Philippians 1.9, we're to love with wisdom and discernment. And of course, 1 Corinthians 13, the, the chapter on love, it says, love doesn't rejoice with unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And so if you see something that is unrighteous, uh, just you know, being seeker sensitive and just, you know, God bless you and there's grace. And no, we need to speak out. We need to say that's evil. That's wrong. Jay, on that, on that to include, as you share, unpack this, there has been an increase in the last 10, 15 years of what you and I would call, or has been de defined as antinomianism. It yeah. recirculates from time to time, even in the church, because the church is influenced by the world and we create that sloppy agape, this antinomianism, because we want no restraint whatsoever. And that isn't love either. Yeah, the hyper grace teaching has been very, very detrimental to the church. And um, and that that needs to, again, there's nothing new in church history. It's always you swing one to the one way or the other. And the other way is legalism. But then this antinomianism is, is just what's pervasive right now in the church. And so, uh, by the way, you said something very interesting, you know, how to overcome fear. The word fear, there's two great words for fear. One is phobos, which is the predominant word in the New Testament. We get the word phobia from. But there's a very rare Greek word that's only used two times. And it's a great word, dilea, and that's in 2 Timothy 1.7, but also in Revelation 21. And it's this word, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but love, power, and sound mind. So agape love overcomes this dilea. That word is translated cowardice, being a coward. It will be cowards who are thrown into a lake of fire. That's the word that's used in Revelation 21.8, that yes, adulterers and murderers, but what's top of the list is cowards. And so... I feel it's time that the church needs, you know, when we say love, we're not saying acquiescing to evil. If that was the case, where would uh, we be if it wasn't for people like Bonhoeffer, who took a stand against 
Nazi Germany, uh, where would we be if it wasn't for people like Dr. King who spoke out against the evils of uh, discrimination? And so the church has to stand for truth and righteousness. And so what happens when the lockdown took place uh, in California, uh, our lockdown was the worst because, believe it or not, 49 states opened up with some form of in-person worship, even if it was like 10% or 100 people or less. Uh, ours was the last state. And the only reason why we opened up at all, because we couldn't even meet at all, no number, no percentage. It was lockdown period. And the only reason why is because we sued the governor and we won in the Supreme Court and went all the way to the Supreme Court and we won. But when I made the decision to sue, it's like, you know, because you're wrapped I mean, we're in a uh, beautiful building in Pasadena. We bought a performance arts building in 2004. It's the Ambassador Auditorium. We have concerts here. We serve our city. So we have tremendous relationship with uh, the mayor, the city council. They love us because we've opened up our building for the arts. And so I knew if I sue the governor, all that was going to be down the toilet, basically. And because we're in a super majority of Democrats in California, only 25% of Californians are registered Republicans. So our city, the whole state are predominantly progressive left Democrats. When I sued, I, I said, Lord, I need a word. I need a clear word from you to go ahead and sue. Because it's, not, it's going to be expensive, it's going to get bloody, the media is going to be all over this. I just saw it flashing before me. And the Lord spoke to me out of Joshua 1, 9. You talk about crossing over. I said, have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? For the Lord your God is with you. And so that word really resonated in my heart. And I said, okay. So I called Matt Staver, our amazing attorney with Liberty Council. And we said, we're going to sue. Well, the next month, I get a letter from our city prosecutor saying, this is a heads up letter that we're going to arrest you. Not a warning. We are going to arrest you. And uh, we're going to put you in jail for one year. We're going to find your church members $1,000 per member ever since you've been meeting, which was on May 31st is when we opened up Pentecost Sunday of 2020. And then the last paragraph was, we reserve the right to arrest your church members. Now, when I read that, it got me so angry with a righteous anger. Because we're talking about law-abiding citizens who just want to worship Jesus. Meanwhile, Newsom is allowing rapists, criminals out of prison by the thousands because of COVID crowdedness. So we're letting the prisoners out, and yet they want to reserve space for us and put us in jail with the people who don't even have a record, who are law-abiding citizens. And I said, this is madness. We've come to Isaiah 520. Woe to those who call good evil, evil good, darkness light, light darkness. And sure enough, you know, uh, letting the prisoners out is good, but arresting church members, you know, that, that's, that's really good, you know. And so uh, we got to, you know, mitigate, we got to save lives, and so we'll arrest church members. It's just crazy. Well, anyway, we asked for emergency injunction, went to the district court to ask for emergency injunction so I wouldn't be arrested. We lost there. And then we went to the Ninth Circuit. We lost there. By the way, elections do have consequences. All the judges that weighed in our case were Obama appointees. Thank God that Trump, President Trump, appointed and nominated 300 federal judges and confirmed them before he left office. And more importantly, three Supreme Court justices that are conservative, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and 
Amy Coney Barrett. So thank God for that, because they ended up weighing in on our case. So when all the way to the Supreme Court, there was two rulings. Okay, the first one in December, they said the arrest of a pastor is totally unconstitutional. Just So we won in December. And then they weighed in on our in-person worship. And on February the 5th, they ruled, uh, believe it or not, 6-3, even John Roberts sided with us, that uh, to lock down the church was totally unconstitutional. It was a landmark court case. This means in perpetuity, no governor can lock down the church ever again for any reason, including a future pandemic. So this was a huge victory for the body of Christ. But the Lord, I think, got all the glory and honor because he said, I've not given you spirit of cowardice, but I've given you this kind of love, power, and sound mind. If you take a stand for me, if you honor me, I will honor you. And so I want to really encourage leaders to be courageous during this time, that we need to do what's right, not just talk right, but we need to do what's right, do what's just, and walk humbly with our king. I really want to just, um, again, thank Matt Staver, our amazing attorney, and Liberty Council, and uh, we give Jesus all the praise, all the glory for the victory. But it's just the beginning. It's a sign. It is a sign of encouragement that revival and reformation is here. Even the 5-4 Supreme Court decision with the heartbeat case in Texas is a sign that we're ready to see Roe v. Wade overturned. And I believe it's going to be overturned, but that's when the real battle takes place. Because on a state level, we have to pass laws to make abortion illegal. So in California, which is the number one abortion state, we're talking about 200,000 babies are being murdered every year. Yes, we want to save lives with COVID-19, and it's not, I'm a pro-life pastor, so I'm all for that. But the cure of lockdown has been worse than even the pandemic. 18,000 businesses have declared bankruptcy in California. Think of the lives that are just absolutely ruined. Depression, suicide is off the charts in California. Domestic violence, all the things that come, and they're just concern about the physical mitigation of COVID-19. They're really using this. And so when I read the letter and I said, this is madness, I said to myself, oh my goodness, it feels like North Korea. Because my dad was a prisoner. He was a Baptist pastor in North Korea when Kim Il-sung wanted to invade South Korea and unite all of Korea under communism. He arrested all the pastors. My dad was born in Pyongyang. He couldn't help it being there. The whole family, my dad's side of the family, all were from North Korea. They arrested my dad and they invaded South Korea. But when uh, the U.S. sent forces in 1950 with uh, General uh, Douglas MacArthur, who was stationed in Japan and came right over to Korea, they pushed the North Korean forces, the, the communist forces, the Chinese border. My dad was released and thousands, millions of Koreans migrated to South. I mean, if they loved communism so much, they would have stayed there, but they all hate it. And anyone who's been under communist rule, whether in Cuba or Venezuela, know what I'm talking about. And so that's in my DNA. That's why when I saw socialism, government control, egregious control of wanting to arrest church members, I said, time out, we are in a battle for the soul of America. This is what we're facing, and it's coming fast and furious. And so it's going to take every believer taking a stand for righteousness' sake, and especially in America. I know in Canada, it's more woke. Australia, New Zealand, 
But in the United States, with our founding fathers and our Christian values here for religious liberty and freedom and First Amendment rights. So, for example, I think we need to take a stand against this mandate of vaccine. Vaccine mandate, I mean, I, I feel even if you believe in the vaccine, there needs to be some kind of prophetic stance that, look, it should be up to the individual and uh, God and, and his and her personal physician to make that decision, not Biden not Governor Newsom. And and so these are some of the ways I think we need to have uh, some kind of resistance and take a stand and sue the governor and sue Biden, sue the hospital that is mandating that all the workers have to be vaccinated or the company that you work for. I, I feel like we have to do whatever it takes, you know, along with prayer and fasting, to see this country turn around. And I think he's waiting for the church I really do. I think the church needs to humble herself and repent uh, and pray for revival, but we need to be more activists in the body of Christ. You bring up a couple of another good points. One is as a pastor, and you had mentioned that you, of course, are, are, you care about all life and people that are suffering from COVID. COVID is definitely real. It's people are being affected. And there's a whole another conversation we can have on that. And, and even many doctors and researchers and scientists that I've talked to that cannot say anything publicly. Uh, because of the the pressures they're under to have to go with the narrative. Even when you had church, you offered people to uh, encourage them to wear masks. You checked their temperature. It wasn't like you're saying, hey, just open up the church. Oh, no, we mitigated. We we encouraged those who are high-risk people to stay home and watch online. We we, uh, had social distancing. Um, We said you could wear a mask if you want to, if you don't. Uh, you don't have to in the service, you know, but we're not going to shame you either way. And the same thing goes with the vaccine. If you have the vaccine, God bless you. If you don't, God bless you. No, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's up to them and God. And and we want uh, that spirit of love and acceptance in, in the house of God. But the thing is, is that as an adult, I mean, I'm not talking about just as a Christian, but just as an adult, it's just common sense. Why can't we trust to the thousands of restaurant owners to practice common sense of taking people's temperature, social distancing uh, at the tables and serving that way. And instead of just locking it down, you know what I'm saying? It was so extreme. Instead of giving people the option of uh, mitigating and doing their business without hurting them. And so this is why the government control to me is really is boarding on totalitarianism, which is a, a characteristic of communism and socialism. There is a, an ancient Greek word for stage actor or play actor, and the word that we get hypocrite comes from that. We have a whole lot of people from Hollywood and everywhere else that they're buying into the Pied Piper narrative that uh, somehow they know better. And yet at the same time, they're stage actors. They, they are play actors. They're, they're hypocrites. And that's where we get that word from. There's a whole lot of people that are play acting. But we as pastors want to care for all people. But yet there's this narrative out there that in the, in the pro-abortion industry that says, well, my body, my choice. But then when it comes to this, it's not my body, my choice. It's you have to do this or lose your job. And there's so many calls of friends that I have. There are thousands of, of airline employees and pilots and flight attendants that are trying to find a way not to have to be mandated. They're saying, look, some of us don't mind taking a vaccination, but we feel like it has to be our choice. And yet they're threatened to lose their jobs. So there's an injunction right now 
for a few thousand employees of airlines. But then people don't realize that just like all the, the containers off the shores of Southern California, that there is a supply chain that is limited right now. That's why our shelves are still empty all over the country when you're trying to buy detergent, you're trying to buy toilet paper, whatever. You have a, a supply chain that has been limited because of that. It's because there's so much more going on than just the pandemic itself. So, and there's an, obviously nefarious things there and people have now proven that it's that it could have been manufactured and it's where it's come from and people didn't want to say that in the beginning. And then I get calls from medical doctors. I get calls from medical professionals and nurses saying, look, I've been vaccinated, but I'm not for mandating it. And here's why. I've had some medical doctors tell me technically a true vaccine isn't proven for three to five years and that they're concerned about some of the vaccines that are out there and the constant boosting, the boosters. And, and so again, it's about, it's not that we're, you know, whatever you do, do in faith. If you take the vaccine, bless you. If you choose not to, then you have to be discerning for you and to be cautious because it is real. But at the same time, you have to know how to keep your immune system up, do the right things, take care of yourself, keep movement, exercise. And then there are others that have pre-existing conditions. Even for me, I went through B-cell lymphoma cancer. Well, some of the vaccines affect the B-cells. And so uh, they're also finding an increase from some of the doctors I've talked to that there has been an increase of resurgence where people are in remission from cancers, where their own body was now kicking in with their antibodies and, and immune system are now having cancer again. So there's so much unknown factors out there that we can't just demand everyone be vaccinated or it's a, it's a mandate that everyone has to or lose your job. Yeah, there's so much hypocrisy and that word is so, so relevant uh, because the government you know, I mean, the whole narrative where they were saying, if you get vaccinated, then we'll go back to normal. You know, majority of Americans have been vaccinated or Israel is like the most vaccinated nation and they're still locked down. I, I had to get vaccinated. to. I was invited to speak at in Israel and I received my vaccination as a result of that because I knew I was called to travel internationally. But I had COVID. I had COVID in November. I had natural antibodies. By the way, they say with a natural antibody is 17 times more powerful than any vaccine. And so I really didn't have to. But again, the mandates of government to say you can't even go to this country. Same thing with Canada. I just came back from Canada. You cannot go into Canada unless you're fully vaccinated, plus a 72-hour uh, negative test um, before flying into a nation like Canada. And yet, you know, it, it's still crazy here in California. We, we're now back to wearing masks while we're working out in a gym. We have to wear a mask into the rest, which is so stupid because, you know, like on the airplane, Talking about flying, everyone's wearing a mask, right? You have to wear a mask. But then when it's time to eat, you, you're in this crowded airplane. You can take off your mask and you can eat without your mask on and drink with them. What, what if this was so safe, you should just mandate that we don't eat, just wear the mask, period. But there's that open window that we're just allowing the germ to spread around us during that window of time to eat. And it's just double standards. It doesn't make logical sense. And so this is why I feel at the end of the day, Satan knows that his time is short and he's trying to control people with fear 
through government, unfortunately, or the media or some of the other institutions. And so we need to realize that we're in a spiritual battle. We need to resist the devil and he will flee. And I believe the way that's going to happen is the light of the gospel, the light of revival coming. So in the midst of the darkness, I'm encouraged because it's Isaiah 60, 1 to 3, yes, Darkness covers the earth, deep darkness over the people, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear before you and nations will come to your light. So I believe that uh, revival history, throughout revival, is always the darkest time before the light of revival breaks forth. And so we're going to see the greatest revival in the history of the church uh, in these days. So I'm encouraged by that. I'm just encouraged by this time we've had together. Thank you so much, Jay, for taking the time with us. Thank you, Doug. If you would just take time to pray for all those sure, who are actually listening or going through the training. Father, your word says you have not given us a spirit of fear, but love, power, and a sound mind. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the agape love. We thank you for the dunamis power. We thank you that you've told us not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So we want to take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we want to have your thoughts. We want to do your will. And so on earth, as it is in heaven, as you've taught us to pray, we've been praying this for 2,000 years, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you that that prayer will be answered. You would never give us a prayer without seeing a measure of it answered in our lifetime and before the second coming. So I pray a blessing upon all those who are watching and uh, their uh, friends and relatives that they're connected to, that you will bring about a massive awakening, begin in our lives. We consecrate ourselves afresh today. We give you our heart afresh, and we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let me encourage everyone. Uh, Psalms 112, verse 1 through 9. I won't read it, but just give you what... I extrapolated from that, and it's part of my prayer, because it reminds us that even in darkness or difficult times, the light dawns for the upright. Those who are gracious, compassionate, righteous, generous, lends freely, scatters gifts to the poor, and walks justly. They will never be shaken, will be remembered forever, have no fear of bad news. Their heart is steadfast and trusting God, and their heart is secure, no fear, will triumph and his horn will be lifted high in honor. Head over now to a wordinseasonpodcast.org and let us know how we're doing by taking a quick survey. If you need prayer today, reach out to prayer at somebodycares.org or you can call or text our 24-hour Somebody Cares America prayer line, 855-459-CARE. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.